Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. Inspiring leadership is the theme, and I'm already inspired by talking to the guest who you're now going to hear from. Um, this was a lovely connection from Sandy Duckett, who said, this is a man you need to have on the podcast, and it is a referral-only podcast. So I said, if you recommend Sandy, let's have him on. Done an awful lot in his life already, both as a businessman, a very successful entrepreneur, um, a fellow dyslexic, so we, we have much in common that that uh, who loves a whole load of things around sport health well-being but also has done a huge amount as you're going to hear shortly with the prince's trust and uh but just has got a, a zest for life so without further ado please introduce yourself thank you jonathan so yes i'm jamie waller and um i'm an entrepreneur an adventurer and also a philanthropist I run a multitude of, of companies that I own the majority of and also have an investment portfolio of a bunch of minorities. And I'm also currently the chair of the Princess Trust and its um and its enterprise program. So I've, I've been quite busy for the last few years building up a, an exclusive group of uh, UK-based entrepreneurs that through their time and, and money uh, are supporting young, less advantaged people, start, build and grow their own business across the UK. Yeah, well, it's a it's a fantastic thing you do, Jamie. And and what was for you the attraction of the Prince's Trust? Did you have any experience in your background in life that made I want to do something, I want to give back and send the lift back down? Yeah, what a great question because we we haven't discussed this. But um, so as as a young child, I grew up in in Bethnal Green in East London. Um, unfortunately for me, my father was an alcoholic and and spent a lot of time beating up my mother. Um, so early memories for me consisted of a lot of screaming and shouting and fighting and the police arriving on occasion, taking my father away. My mother, not having the confidence to to leave him, uh, found a local charity called the Imps Motorcycle Display Team, which is a, a military themed display team based in East London for disadvantaged children. And that gave me respite. So it took me away from home every Friday night. Uh, I returned on a Sunday evening ready for school the next week. And it also took me away from home every school holiday. So from age five to 16, I was away for 20 plus weeks a year. Um, but when I was about nine years of age, the imps ran into some financial difficulties and was about to close. And that meant 40 odd children were about to be returned to dysfunctional homes. But the Prince's Trust, along with a number of other uh, leading charities, threw some money in as grants to keep the imps alive. So when I was able and I sold my first business uh, in 2016 and I made some real money and wanted to look at philanthropy uh, more closely, I, I both went back to the imps and became their title sponsor, of which I still am today. And I also got involved with the Princess Trust originally as a donor um, and a patron. Well, that's fantastic. And there's a special connection for me in that I saw the pictures on your site of the imps. And of course, um, I was in the Royal Signals and we have the White Helmets motorcycle display team who have a you've got a close connection there. And um, my um, my wife uh, was in charge of the Royal Signals display team, which included the the White Helmets and the the riders were a, a special bunch. And, and getting in there, it was really hard. And the, the skills that they needed, which, of course, the imps needed and you needed were very special. And it, and it brought on a lot of a lot of leadership and talent and of course then there was of course just like in any in any organization there were one or two of the the gods who thought they were better than the others and do you know that you're a first year and i'm a second year and i've got yeah. more experience than you yeah. all this kind of ranking does that resonate at all oh yeah absolutely i mean jonathan you gotta you gotta think he was we were 40 odd boys from east london um <clears throat> so it was remarkably different to go into a display team full of such discipline and structure so you know at age five we were having to um have our own kit inspections you know have you ironed the collar of your shirt correctly have you cleaned your the soles of your boots um room inspections consisted of people running their fingers over the top of um, wardrobes to make sure that you had dusted the room not just cleaned the superficial stuff that you could see 
And so that was quite a, a big learning curve, age five, and also being away from home. But then by the time I was age 11, I became Lance Corporal. When I was age 12, I became Corporal, 13 or 14, um, a, a sergeant. And by the age of 16, I was team captain, which meant I was overall responsible for 45 boys uh, and their discipline and what they did. And, and I also had a management team of 12 lance corporals corporals and sergeants that were ensuring that that discipline was delivered consistently throughout what we did and we would travel all over the country and sometimes the world and we would put on displays you know at edinburgh castle for example in front of sixteen thousand people and the, and the the pride in getting to do that um i was fortunate enough to meet prince charles age age nine and where we put on a private display for for the royal family and that sort of being given that confidence uh, and being and for people to believe in you but also being to get that level of responsibility at a young age is um i mean it's just amazing you know it it it, it delivers so much to so many people that were like me that were a bit lost well and it it really is an inspiring story and and who was to know that that 5 year old who was cleaning the soles of his boots um would one day be chatting easily to the king or having just returned from Necker Island, having spent time discussing your next book with Sir Richard Branson. Tell us a little bit about Necker Island, because, I mean, I've always been a big fan of, of Sir Richard Branson, but from afar, you happen to have spent time training with him on his island with about 16 other leaders. So tell us a bit. Yeah, about so, um, I mean, it's, I've only just got back about five, six weeks ago, and um, I didn't really know what to expect other than, you know, I, I thought Richard would be an interesting chap and it would be great to spend some time with him. But when I went, when I got there, I mean, it, I, you know, I've, I'm fortunate enough to have stayed in some beautiful places around the world. Um, but NECA is, and I know it sounds, um, it sounds a bit cliche, but it really is something remarkably different, you know. To, to, to own an island, it's sort of creating a country. Um, and what, what's wonderful, what Richard's done to the island is, you know, it, how it's self, how it's self-sustainable, how we've got wind turbines on the on the northeast part of the island, how on the southwest part of the island we've got tons of solar all sort of shit, all, all disguised with 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 vegetation and wildlife, and how there's animals everywhere, giant turtles, um, and and you know donkeys and 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 a dog running around and 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 it's just a flamingo beach you know of, of around 500 flamingos on one side of the island the island's only 62 acres i think in in total but it's very easy to be lost in this sort of this air of paradise and then wrap around that that you're generally with a bunch of like-minded people 17 very like-minded people it truly is just um it's 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 remarkable it's exceptional and, and Richard is Richard's done an amazing thing and and he's an amazing lovely person and a great host as well well and and he is indeed one that you and I and others do find so inspiring um and yet has a lovely humility about him as as you do so I mean, look congratulations on you know getting invited and being part of that gang well if, as you look at without mentioning the names of any of the others but as you looked at that group of individuals, what was it that struck you about them as characters and the way they behaved and the qualities that they had? So everybody was remarkably thoughtful. And that and that that really that really stuck struck out at me that, you know, um it wasn't a bunch of go-getting high energy let's succeed at any cost people they were very thoughtful each had had their own uh contact or, or attachment to to philanthropy in their own way either their own foundations or, or or various other things um and i guess you know there was a there was a sense of maturity and and i guess that's you know you, you you're not invited to necker i guess if you're going to behave inappropriately and, and not be that way um but it was it was just lovely and uh met a great a, good bunch of friends um, from that trip who some of them will remain friends forever, I'm sure. I think that's, that's just almost like back into the imps. And when you did that experience together, how much it bonds you. You're also going to be with one or two white-collar psychopaths who you think you can't <laughs> wait to get away from them. But any organisation you're in, you'll have that that share of the, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, 
But I was just thinking, um, one of the guests I interviewed was the managing director of the Hoffman Institute, who cared. Mm. Have, you, have you ever come across the Hoffman I have, Institute? Yeah. Okay, well, um, I was just thinking with, you know, what you and, and many of the, the members of the IMPS went through. And I found that a brilliant program that I went through in December. And probably in my 61 years, the most powerful personal development program I've ever done. I just wondered if you'd ever done it or thought of doing it. No, I haven't. Um, but I am, you know, I am a life learner, although I, I left school pre prior to even sitting at GCSE. But I found education much later in life through business. Um, in 2010, when I did my first business course at Cranfield University. And, you know, that was that was difficult for me because I was very nervous, you know, turning up at a university thinking, what, what am I going to expect? I'm dyslexic. Am I going to, is this going to work for me? But Cranfield made me feel, uh, you know, remarkably well at home and, and it delivered so much to me. And since Cranfield, I then went off and did an exec education at, at Stanford and one at Berkeley. And then finally, I, I, I signed up to do my executive MBA at the London Business School. And I'm very proud that I'm the only person to um, enter the executive MBA program that didn't have a GCSE because obviously it's a postgraduate course to do an MBA you should have a degree you certainly should have some A levels and probably sort of two handfuls of GCSEs but I went along with some A3 boards and did a presentation to the, the admissions team there on why it would be good for them as a brand to take somebody like me with zero education and accept them on the MBA program so I'm a lifelong learner I always have coaches in my life um, or for for both fitness and, and business goals, and you know, I'm 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 a strong believer in in using these tools and frameworks to to improve life. Yeah, well, I, I love that, and I'm I, I feel a, a, a fellow uh, spirit in you. And uh, the other thing that we were chatting about um, was your um, your love of health and well being, and clearly you keep yourself in good shape. Let's have a talk on that. Let's just go straight into that because I think that whole area of, of health, because we've got to be business athletes as well as personal athletes, because if we're going to perform well and think well, our body's got to be in good shape. We were talking particularly uh, around the whole thing. You've, you've been on the Zoe program. Where, where do you want to begin? I'm just interested in your learning of some of the latest research that's coming through about how we should look after our fitness, our health, and and what to do to help our lifespan match our health span yeah so i think i mean it's a great you know i love talking about this subject and actually my whole time on NECA, i think richard and i spent more time talking about health and well-being than we than we spent talking about any other subject um and it's interesting because you know when i grew up i'm 44 now but sort of being an 80s child and a 90s entrepreneur there was almost this um there was almost this badge of honor of little sleep working 20 hours a day you know i only need four hours sleep a night etc etc so, so there was almost it was you, you were you were um you were celebrated for being unhealthy um and what i love about the business world now is how that is truly changing you know people no longer want to celebrate that it's important to think about sleep etc and so i i do enough obviously i love to keep fit i you know i i, I have a hit workout um crossfit type workout six or seven times a week i run a couple of times a week and i also walk a lot i love walking so i you know i'll do a bunch of work calls every day actually i just did some before this before this podcast for an hour you know an hour walk and do do a couple of calls so i think for me exercise doesn't need to be as as much as i do it you know people don't need to go to the gym you know i probably do an hour and 30 an hour and two hours of exercise some form of exercise a day and I recognize that people don't have the time for that. But actually, the importance of walking, you know, which hardly anybody does anymore, jumping in the car from place to place and trying to design your life where walking has to become a fundamental part of it. So um, Chris Evans, the radio DJ, has uh, has a good sort of life hack for this, which is, you know, he he purchased a parking space for his car five miles away from the radio station. So that's where he parks and then he runs to the radio station and then he either runs back or he gets the tube back because he can't be bothered to run, but he had to run there in the morning and he drives his, drives his car home. So there are, no, you don't need to go and buy a parking space five miles away from your office, but there's, there's certainly, there's many simple improvements. You know, I talk to my wife about this a lot because my, you know, we've got two children, seven and six time is, time is not a luxury that she has all the time but you know to be able to 
get to school, pick up 30 minutes early and go for a walk, mm. right? You're, you're getting less traffic because everybody else is rushing to get to school, pick up at the same time. So you've missed all the traffic, which means your stress levels are lower. You've got 30 minutes to have a walk before you pick up the children, which is a bit of headspace before you've got two children in the back of the car screaming and shouting. And I, I really quite like those simple hacks that you can put in, you know, never using the escalator. If you use the escalator, use it as an opportunity to take two steps at a time while walking up those walking up those stairs. And I think that's really important. And you and I touched base uh, a bit earlier on about protein, the importance of protein. I think that's the one thing that I find is the most simple change that anybody in life can make. Every single person that I asked the question to about protein are not getting enough protein. And, you know, you should be getting a, a, a sort of a gram of protein per, per pound of weight. And, and, uh, and that's, it's remarkable. And it's not just about, and you don't need to go buying protein shakes and protein bars, because obviously most of that stuff's all processed and it's terribly bad for you anyway. But there's a remarkable difference in how your body digests protein. So for example, if you were having a, a, a an English breakfast in the morning, and you decide to go for the toast and the beans first, and then the meat, which is the higher protein content, your body will digest less protein than if you went for the the, the meat first. And that general rule to think about is go for the fiber, go for the vegetables first, then go for the protein, then go for the carbohydrates. The benefit of that too is that you, you digest less of the carbohydrates, which is really not what you want to be digesting lots of as well. So simple, simple hacks, not ask, you know, not getting people to change much, just change how you do these things and they will have a remarkable Im impact. My wife, um, I, she won't mind me for saying this, but she's one of those people, you know, fad diets after pregnancy and stuff like that. And when I simply, we simply sat down one day and I said to her, you need to eat more. You need to stop doing 1000 calories a day. You need 2000 calories a day, but this is how much protein you need to undertake too. It transformed her life. Now she eats whatever she wants to eat, but she eats it in a certain order and she makes sure she gets enough protein. And it's been life-changing because, you know, weight certainly for, 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 for probably more women than men comes with terrible mental health issues, you know, if they're not confident in their weight after birth and stuff like that. So fixing this stuff is just wonderful. But um, it's not spoken about a lot. So pro protein for me is the biggest single game changer that anybody can take. Yeah, and I'm I'm completely with you, and I'm just um, uh, like you. I'm constantly learning and and reading various uh, or listening to various audio books about it, and uh, very interested in the whole functional medicine. We talk about Dr. Mark Hyman and um, a lot of the work on longevity, uh, which I, I think is is really interesting, but obviously interests Richard Branson as well. When when you're going for your protein, because there's you know various debates about you know if you could tend to be with your turkey and your chicken and your your fish um maybe some of the lentils but i don't find that gives me so much wind i tend to avoid yeah. the beans and lentils having been vegan for a while i just it really got my gut I, I never quite adjusted to that even after a year but i tend to avoid the steaks and that the heavier meats because it takes so long to digest particularly as a evening meal but but what's your favorite what do you tend to go for to get your protein so um so yeah i mean what white lean meats are are obviously are, are obviously the winner there but i i think what's important for me is i want to get at least 50 grams of protein by brunch so i tend to have brunch rather than breakfast because i fast for 16 hours and and eat in eight um and i like to work out fasted so i, I go to the gym in the morning and then come home and and have so breakfast around 10 30 11 a.m so brunch um, but I tend to want to ensure that that's high in protein. So, you know, Greek yogurt, um, lots of berries, lo lots of lots of nuts um, and making sure that you can get around. It's not easy. You can get 40, 40 grams of protein in that breakfast. Um, and if you have to, sometimes I do have protein powders that are that are way um, that you can throw in there if you need an extra 20 grams. And sometimes I will do that, but I try to get my protein from, from natural sources. But what I have worked out, if you don't get the right amount in the morning, it's really difficult to catch up throughout the rest of the day. Right. So, you know, I, I'm trying to digest a lot of protein uh, and it's easy to get protein, uh, you know, 500 grams of protein in an evening meal. 
it's it's really difficult to get that anywhere else um you know big stakes and stuff like that are easy so but just be i think for people to be mindful that you know nuts are a good source of protein yogurt is a good the right yogurt obviously but uh, and try and avoid all of this low fat stuff which is you know taking out all of the good stuff and putting in loads of bad stuff yeah uh, in, in in some sort of effort to to convince you you're doing good for yourself and they, uh, one of the things uh, I find is a very useful hack is that the four Ks, kefir, kombucha, um, what is it, kimchi and uh, sauerkraut, kraut. Yes. Um, and because a bit, a bit like you, we're both um, fans of the Zoe process and looking at our gut microbiome and mine's different from yours and different from my wife's and yours is different from your wife's. But actually the fact you're together, it makes the, the certain elements of them that they are quite similar because you're in the same family and and your your children who are seven and six, uh, giving them the chance to be around animals and puppies. And I've got two in here who are luckily quiet at the moment, but uh, <laughs> um, we, we, we're looking after our children who are 30 and uh, yeah, our son's 13, he's in the police and he's got his wife and their two-year-old and one-year-old are living with us. The whole family is living with us at the moment until they move house to near us here. But it is interesting, giving them lots of chance to play with the dogs and stuff. And, oh, they might get the bugs and things. But but actually, you want them to to yeah. get that. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting um, in in the usual things I think about eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper. I think that's little, little, little things that you would relate to in how you've lived your life. But we've talked about eating and just the importance of, um, you know, real food uh, that, that someone wearing a hat and a white cape or a white uh, scientist coat if they made that and, and it's got stuff you can't read i mean broccoli has one ingredient on the back of it it's pretty simple you know what yes. that is. um so so the eating i think we both we both uh, get that and and just the damage that the ultra high processed standard american standard british diet has done 1951 percent of people were obese now in the uk 34 percent America, it's fifty percent. There's a, as a link, and big food and big pharma uh, have a lot, lot yeah. to answer for, don't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, the, as I age, I'm getting more and more liberal in my thought process, which is a good thing because I, you know, I probably wouldn't have liked the twenty year old, the twenty year old me much now. Um, but you know, I think it's disgusting. I think back to the people and that where I grew up in in East London and my my parents' lifestyle and what they fed what they fed me as a child and um you know the food industry are are incentivized to to produce food that lasts has the longest possible shelf life to enable them to make sure they sell it and not dump it for for, for profit but then they also add stuff to this processed food that gives you cravings for more food which is obviously they're incentivized to do for you to one buy more of that certain product so do you eat more at that one time but also that you get hungry again soon after and then there is absolute scientific links to this processed food being responsible for many diseases so the, the, but it's it's just i mean it's disgusting that we let it happen and in the uk we're better than but better than the us in some of our food standards and stuff but we, we're, we're not we're far from perfect and it's the poor um uh, and the less educated uh, that that suffer and i i find that really quite quite tough you know P people like us are very fortunate probably that we can not only educate ourselves and buy the right food we can probably spend um more money on making sure it's organic and free range and the various other things that we believe are, are good for our bodies um if you're on income support or, or working as a cleaner or a, or you know helping old age pensioners as my mother was she didn't have that luxury um and i think that's a shame because i think as a that if if government cannot have the responsibility of making sure that we do right by everybody not just a select few then you know what 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 purpose do they have uh, and i would like to see a lot more done about this because you know you mentioned i've got a a, a blood glucose monitor on now um is anybody in my mum's era, getting a blood glucose monitor and monitoring themselves? No, they're not, because it's it's available to the, the, those of us that are educated on it can then afford to act upon the data it gives us, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a real shame. 
It's a mm. real, real shame. You know, we've got an NHS that's collapsing under the pressure of all this stuff, but then we've got a food industry that are creating pressure on the NHS and we've got a government that's too busy to look at the food industry or or because of the power of it, won't do anything about it anyway. And this spiral of the wealth gap getting bigger and bigger, the poorer and the less educated uh, being, you know, quite frankly, just treated very, very badly in society. It, it will end one day in riots and, and unrest and that will be terrible for us all. I, I think you're exactly right, Jamie. And it, it's it is it does concern me that it's it's almost a it becomes a conspiracy in some ways. That not I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but but that big food are encouraged, as you say, to make this uh, food, and particularly when they're acting on leptin and ghrelin, which which keeps that hunger and then uh, has an impact on you and wanting more of the wrong stuff and making it just the consistency of mother's milk like an ice cream which is just the right fat and just the right sugar that you want more and yeah. more and more of it of course they want to sell more you know they're in the marketing game they've got to make a profit from it but as you say the wrong people in society are not informed about the impact on them and they go for something the longer the shelf like the shorter your life and yeah. as you as you were saying and, and then of course big pharma people that you know go to the doctor and they go give me a pill and so they want a pill for something, but that's actually not going to go upstream and solve the problem that they're still taking the shit food that they shouldn't be having in the first place, which is uh, causing them to have a dysfunctional metabolism. The American uh, statistic, 93.5 percent American are metabolically dysfunctional. I don't think Britain's much better. And no. so that affects mental health. So we're going, oh, mental health's going up. Yeah, it's because what you eat has an effect on your brain energy. Um, so I and, and I think with the lobbying of people like the big pharma uh, pharma companies and the big food companies, they have marketing budgets the size of a, the you know the the GDP of a small country. Whereas yeah. bro broccoli, do they have a marketing budget? No, they don't. Yeah. They just sell broccoli. But yeah. people go, I don't want that, but I want another big you know giant tub of ice cream or a fizzy drink or whatever it might be, knowing that it's it's not good for us. We also touched on sleep, you and I, mm. and um, you said early in your life that uh, you'd you'd struggled with sleep. It's something that I'm uh, I'm recording on my uh, my aura ring. I've had a whoop strap. I've got my yep. Apple Watch, so you can get a bit of a bit obsessive about data. And okay. uh, now I've got my you know, like you, I've got the wearable uh, glucose <laughs> monitor on the back. I'm getting really excited, and I've got a solar panel on the roof, and I'm recording how much sunshine <laughs> I'm getting. I'm getting really excited. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, the the um, as we're looking at things like sleep, what I've I've found is that I'm just uh, particularly I'm older and I've got a sort of enlarged prostate, which is sort of a personal thing. But uh, I'm not getting as much sleep, and I'm perhaps getting up a few times during the night. And the deep sleep and the REM, which I want, uh, until I found I did much more exercise. I'm doing endurance bike riding at the moment, going to raise money for Help for Heroes and my wife's charity, which is Violence Against Women and Girls, which is called the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, which we. We really care deeply about getting people out of that trap of county lines. Mm. And we work with the serious organized crime uh, part of the home office to help the, get these girls out of this grip of this environment that, that you saw in, in Bethnal as you were growing up and helping them get a chance and getting some mentors, probably a bit like the, the work you do with the, the Prince's Trust. Um, but uh, I, I just, I just want to sort of, help people with this this whole idea of sleep i found that actually i'm taking um oh what is it it's almost like a the cannabinoid bit of of uh cannabis but but the cbd oil yes and i i take that and actually i have deeper sleep and i have more rem sleep i don't know whether you've tried that in your various yes absolutely well i've got a wonderful story about sleep actually if, if you wouldn't mind me sharing it because it's a it's a it's a recent um a recent dialogue with with Richard Branson, who we've already spoken about. But um, so I, I arrive on NECA just some weeks ago, and on on day two, Richard says, "You know, anyone up for a proper bike ride tomorrow on one of the neighbouring islands?" And I said, "Yep, yeah, absolutely." So Richard and I, the only two people with uh, enough strength to get up some of these hills, so him and I are off at the front. The others are all being picked up by the support vehicle, and they're now <laughs> sat in a minibus. So it just happens that it's Richard and I cycling for a few hours in the morning, and we're going up this hill. And I said to him, I thought I'd read somewhere that he'd had some difficulty with sleep. So I said, how are your sleep? And he said, perfect. Da, da, da. Do you have an issue? I said, yes, I sleep for four hours a night, you know, two hours in the beginning. I'm up for a few hours and then two hours again. 
And he said, oh, you really need to, you really need to resolve this, Jamie. You know, he said, I've been sleeping well now for 23 years and it's changed my life and et cetera, et cetera. So we had this great, great chat. Um, we we get back on the boat, go back to NECA, don't think anything more of it. Um, lunchtime, I'm, we're sort of going down to the beach for lunch. Richard comes rushing over to me, taps me on the shoulder and says, I've written down a few things that we spoke about today about sleep, which might help you. Here you go. And he handed me this scrap of paper with his handwriting on it. And I was like, Richard, that's really kind of you. Thank you. And I thought, how lovely of him to have gone back home, had his shower, had his breakfast and thought about this and then came and tapped me on the on the shoulder. Anyway, didn't think anything more of it. The following night at dinner, we're all having some pre-drinks at, at one of the bars. And Richard comes up to me, he arrives, he comes straight up to me again. He's like, Jamie, remember I was telling you about that TEDx talk? And I said, yes. He said, anyway, I remembered the name of it. I watched it again. And here are the key points that you need to think about and focus on. And I said to him, you watched it again, what, today? And he went, yes. And I said, rather than just give me the name to watch it myself, he was like, well, I knew there was loads of stuff in there that, that was not that useful. So I just thought I'd give you the useful parts. Wow. So when I left Necker, I said to Richard, you, I don't know if you realize what you were doing, Richard, but by doing that, you've made it absolute vital that I now act upon this advice and do something about my sleep. So I got back from Necker, I appointed a sleep doctor. And actually, I've been working with a sleep doctor for three weeks. And this week... Every single night this week, I'm only allowed in bed for six hours a night. It's part of this um, training program we're doing. I have slept for six hours every single night this week. I've got an appointment with him again tomorrow morning. Last week, I was restricted to only being allowed in bed for three hours a night, which was pretty miserable. Um, but I'm going through this program, and this doctor believes that he'll get me to seven hours sleep a night within the end of this program, which is six weeks' time. But already, it's changed my life. Six hours a night is is a vast improvement on four. But um, I think it's a wonderful story because it goes to show you, you, you asked about Richard earlier on, what sort of character this, this chap is. So this is a chap that's overly busy especially with galactic and orbit and everything else that's been going on of recent weeks um but when i re-watched the program and wrote down some notes and then brought them up to me and handed them to me in, in a bar it was it was it was a remarkable remarkable experience but it absolutely meant that i should focus on it but going back to the subject of sleep so for me i i like to keep fit i like to uh, stay healthy and i know that sleep is pulling in the opposite direction for that. You know, your your the muscle growth is not the same if you don't get enough sleep, and you know you, you're not you're not repairing. You're going into a workout the following day. <laughs> so I knew all this, but I just didn't know what the answer was. And I've used CBD oil and use it quite frequently, magnesium tablets. Um, excuse me, but for the last week, with my six hours sleep a night, I've actually stopped the CBD oil. Um, because I found it was putting me into a very light sleep um, rather than a deep sleep. And I've been taking a supplement called GABA. Yes. Um, and, and that has been completely life-changing. So GABA is is recommended for people with dyslexia and more particular ADHD who have overactive minds of a night. And it sort of gives you the effects of, that alcohol gives you, but without the, the terrible side effects of alcohol. So it's it calms your mind lets you get into a deep sleep quite quickly and, and it's been remarkable that, that's very interesting because i uh i have a, a fascinating nutritionist barbara cox lovesy and she recommended something which had gaba in it but i haven't found a way of getting gaba over the counter or do you have to get prescribed it no you can buy it over the counter and um so uh i can't think of the name of the company uh that, that i was recommended to no get it. you can google it and, it and it will you can buy it over the counter yeah yeah, that is is really interesting, particularly because you you didn't and and the, the the key parts, as you say, the deep sleep is so very important, and and the the rapid eye movement, the, the dream state, that, that's fascinating. Now I want to go back to you know the entrepreneurial side of you, um, because many people listening are from a whole walks of life in about one hundred and twenty five different countries, um, many of them business leaders themselves or aspiring business leaders. How did you um, become an entrepreneur? I heard in the you know the early days, and, and what have been the businesses that you've set up and that you're doing now? So I left school um, at age sixteen. I had a I was dyslexic, and 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 when I was at school, it wasn't really diag it wasn't diagnosed. You were just considered to be thick, 
disruptive or or, or something in between. Um, so I left school without sitting a, a single GCSE on the basis of I just needed to get out and, and get a job. Um, and I, I set up my first business age 16, cleaning people's windows. I went and bought some ladders and a bucket and I went knocking door to door and, you know, took on new customers every <clears throat> every few minutes. And, and that was great. And I ran that for a year and I sold it a year later in the classified ads of a newspaper for £5,000. And I used that £5,000 and I went and bought a half a dozen cars at an auction and, and started selling cars. I rented a piece of land next to a shop in, in southeast London. And next minute I was a car salesperson. And, you know, that went reasonably well for a few years before Transport for London came along and put double red lines stopping people from parking outside the the, the piece of land um so I, I just I loved working for myself I, I always was full of ideas and 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 I went from that to, to setting up an outsourced um debt recovery company so we worked with governments around how you can coming from Bethnal Green from a poor background I was very focused on how people are treated fairly when they owe government money and what I had witnessed is that they weren't and that the government were giving some companies the authority to go and terrorize people um, and cause severe hardship, you know, because sometimes the effects aren't always noticeable on what happens when a debt collector turns up at someone's house. There's there's obviously the noticeable ones. Oh, they're vulnerable because they're a single mother, unemployed, et cetera, et cetera. But no one was really talking about, well, what happens if it's the wife who hasn't paid something and then the husband beats her up when the debt collector leaves what you know what are, what happens if the debt collector turning up five times in a month creates a breakdown of the marriage and then the spiraling effect thereafter or the mental health issues so we built a very successful business that focused on ethical debt recovery on behalf of government so how could you try and protect people from being terrorized by those that were merely looking for merely looking for profit and I sold that business in 2016. And then I took all my learnings from that business and divested it into a technology platform and went and sold it to the creditors direct, which was, we no longer want to be involved in the collection process, but what we want to do is help you manage the collectors to ensure that they are doing it correctly and people are being protected. So I've, as I said earlier on, I've become very liberal as, as I age. I'm very focused on treating people fairly, the poor not being persecuted, um, and just through some people's circumstances shouldn't mean that they are terrorized or, or punished severely because the, the the effects that you don't see of that are, are true. You know, people in debt do commit suicide. People in debt do get divorced. Um, people in debt, debt do bury their head in the sand and, 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 and do silly things, you know, turn to alcohol, turn to drugs. And it's not spoken about much, but it should be because generally when money is owed to government, it's not a cash flow issue. It's a balance sheet issue. So there should be absolute no requirement to rush that collection process, in my view. <laughs> You know, yeah. slowly, slowly catch a monkey. It's a balance it, sheet issue, not a cash flow issue. Yeah, it, it's it's lovely to hear uh, what you talk about because I think for the the layman, they just uh, uh, attach debt recovery to the bailiffs coming round, the heavies taking all your stuff, and and it resonates very strongly because my wife Lee talked about as she was growing up, her mum had to get out of an abusive relationship, um, and should have been paid for her two children by the father but wasn't and was too proud to ask for it through the through the court system. So she struggled on her own. But Lee remembers many a time hiding behind the sofa with her mum going Shh, as the bailiff was knocking on the door, looking for the money that they couldn't pay. And, and it, it stuck with her, you know, all, all her life. It stayed with her, which is why, you know, she having been through tough times is now paying back so she's trying to help people who are going through violence against women and girls and also those who are the the most unfortunate to give them a start in life and and help them uh you know get on the ladder so they can look after themselves and that's an agency um and also that the charity Leadership foundation works in in africa we've done we went to the slums of nairobi and also to kwazulu natal where just a small amount of money into the pot in this um 
uh, in the hut that we were in, you know, would allow them to do some microfinance between the different wives because yeah. they wouldn't drink all the alcohol that if they gave the money to the husbands, the wives looked after it and they made sure the children got school shoes yeah. and things like that. But it, it is interesting. You've got deeply involved in the Princess Trust. And how does how does a charity like the Inspiring Leadership Foundation get support from something like the Princess Trust? What is their way? Because, you know, Lee's charity has been going about eight years. That They've got so much need out there but they haven't found a way of getting the sufficient sponsorship for all the programs. They only need about 160 quid a girl to, to actually get them through the program. What's, what's the way of people doing that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, I, I think it's the, it's a true problem post COVID, right? So, um, you know, I also sat on the board of a, a charity called um, breast cancer Haven that was a COVID victim, unfortunately, and, and is now, that is now gone. But these smaller charities, which are in some cases are the better ones because they really do get to the grassroots, um, the grassroots of some of these issues are just terribly struggling with 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 funding. You know, um, I'm very fortunate to be chair of the Princess Trust, where um, people want to be involved with the Princess Trust because of the brand associated with it. And I should point out, the Princess Trust is a very small charity. It seems a lot bigger on the outside. I mean, we we turn over about. 70 odd million pounds a, a, a year and um about 88 pence and in, in every pound goes to goes to supporting su supporting young people um but the princess trust and other larger charities do have partnership programs that you can apply to be part of and and they will you know if it's if it's if it suits their dynamic of who they're trying to support then they will um that they will help you know the same way they did with 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 the imps but, you know, I, I've also, the, the IMPS is still running today, which is a tiny charity. You know, we turn over about £65,000 a year and help 40-odd children a year. Um, and I, I've personally been involved in lottery funding applications for that charity on six occasions, of which all of them have failed. Um, because, you know, on the face of it, it doesn't support enough people or or, or the diversity is, 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 is not enough, you know. Um I mean, it's terrible, you know. If the if the if an organisation like Cancer Research or, or or the Princess Trust applied for a lottery grant, they would tick all the boxes. They would be able to fill out a good application, and they probably would get the funding. Um, but what's happening with these grassroots levels? What I would like to see a bit more often is some organisations, you know, like a trade association. There should be an association for small charities that can run this process for them, that can bring them together and say, well, you don't need to do the application yourself. If we get six like-minded charities and we can do the application as a consortium, then we're going to tick all the boxes and we're going to get the funding. And I think that's the future for smaller charities. And it needs that type of trade association to come in, but be the commercial mindset behind the smaller charities because they deliver wonderful things they, they do and you're exactly right i mean just for example you know seeing lee work for the last eight years and she'll work until three in the morning she's not getting paid for it as the ceo she does it on the side of her desk of her day job as a, a coach and a facilitator and a, and a speaker but but many of the volunteers give their time some get a little bit of money that we scrape together but but it, it it's learning from first principles all over again because it's hard to find where to learn and how to apply for funding and 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 of course the other thing is because um everybody's trying to do their own thing and they feel strongly about maybe a daughter who's died of a certain illness and they'll start a charity for that that they can end up being competitive with other charities because they think mm -hmm. it's a small pie and it's there's only is almost a, a scarcity mentality rather than abundance mentality Whereas what Lee has found, she's often go, let's collaborate, let's work together, your charity yeah. and mine. And some of them go, really, what's the catch here? You know, what, what's in it for you? She goes, well, well, let's just all work together. We're trying to help people in society. Yeah. But, it, but it, it almost makes them fight against each other. But look, thank you for all that you're doing for society uh, and what goes on. Let's have a little bit of, of a talk about, uh, you know, looking back at your life and some of the things you have. Let, let's talk about proudest moments um both i mean i imagine it's you know your, your, your two children uh, and you know being married and things like that but yeah, I, i'll wait to hear from you and then maybe a dark moment you you mentioned about your late mother that there could be certain moments which are dark and what did you learn from both the proudest and the the darkest moments jamie yeah so um i mean obviously the proudest moment is always um ha having children it really is i mean you can't ever tell someone who doesn't have children 
the the joy that comes with having children because no one ever quite gets it but it is just completely life-changing in 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 every way but also you know i must say i'm also a, a very proud moment was to be asked to be chair of the princess trust and their enterprise network you know um to go from a very disadvantaged background and 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 you know we grew up in a two-bedroom flat above a shop in Bethnal Green where my mum still lived until until she passed to to then representing our king uh as I have done for the past few months or or, or slightly longer since since his his mother the queen passed um it's a real you know for me to have gone from requiring the princess trust support as a child to now leading uh, the drive for getting support to help other young children or, or kids like me is, is a very, very, very proud moment. So every time I stand up on stage, I was asked to talk at a, a party on behalf of the king for the coronation. And, um, you know, a few hundred people in a room, there's me talking, being asked to talk on behalf of the king. Um, that, that, that's that's a remarkable turnaround in life. Um, who, who would Just stay with that for a moment. Who would have thought, you know, back there, when you were dealing with, you know, tough time with father and his drinking and mum struggling in that uh, abusive relationship and, and you trying to get away from it all, doing the the imp biking, who would have thought that there you would be, you know, working with the king on behalf of a project that he started? And in your, just briefly before we go into the, onto the darkest moment, in your occasions when you've met the, the prince as he was then, now the king, what sort of qualities stand out in him? Because I imagine he's an inspiring. We ought to get him on the podcast. Yeah. Um, perhaps, perhaps you should mention it to him. I'll, next yes. time, next time you speak. So I think there's a. I've got a recommendation for you. I think you should share your story. Um, but um, what what qualities stand out from from your meeting of him? So he's he, he's he's um the king is remarkably th- thoughtful, you know. So he 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 comes prepared, which I know sounds you know. People go, well, of course he does. You know, you get a brief before he rocks up. You know, people always say, oh, he remembered me. And people go, oh, he didn't remember you. He was told before he walked in the room. And and of course he was. But um, when you're told to remember somebody that you met six months ago and here's a, a brief bit of information on them, you've still got to carry that with you, make sure that you don't get the wrong person and, and, and stuff like that. And he's remarkably good at that, you know, and that's not easy. It's sort of that ability of actors to be able to learn their lines and, and remember them remember them so well no matter what else is going on around them but what what he has this remarkable ability to make you feel welcome to make you feel that you deserve to be there to make you feel comfortable mm. actually um i remember the first time i met him he he said jamie i wanted to um i wanted to thank you for you know coming a full circle of being helped by the trust and now giving your time to the trust and i hear that you've done some amazing inspirational talks for some of the young people and I said something along the lines of, oh, you know, that's that's the least I can do. You, you can't shut me up when I get going. And he, he, he and he turned back around and said, and actually, I have heard that, too, or something. <laughs> it was, you know, that ability for him not to be stiff, for him to be dynamic with his thoughts, but be warm with them, too, is just it's just lovely. He does make you feel very, very welcome. Now, you know, I'm without doubt, I'm I'm very aware that I'm very privileged to have been asked to serve as I have and to be able to 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 be you know the enterprise network at behalf of the trust you know I'm labeled as the founder and the chair of that and that's a, a title that will never go and and something I'm immensely proud of and I hope my children are, are proud of too yeah and and for those who um you know want to have a, a pop at the, at the royal family I think you ought to get to know them and, and have met them before you actually have a pop of them. Uh, my two occasions which have stayed in my memory, once was meeting Diana, Prince of Wales, and the other one was when I got my MBE and went to get it from the Queen. And, and on both occasions, they had the ability to make me feel like I was the only person in the room that mattered. Now, mm-hmm. that's a real skill because I wasn't by any means you know, I wasn't getting knighted or anything like that. There were, I was, as awards go, I was at the bottom rung of the awards, but they, they knew about me or they'd learnt their brief. They didn't have an earpiece. They didn't have someone whispering, oh, this is Jonathan. And he's done. And and the queen talked to me about what I'd done and the things that led to the award. And I I just, and okay, I had that two minutes and then she shook your hand and gently pushed you away. And then you were told that the gentle push away is, Stop hanging onto her hand. Let, 
let go. She's got to meet somebody else. Um, but it, but it, it is a tremendous experience. And that, to me, is inspiring leadership, that you care enough that you'll learn about somebody, you'll make eye contact, you'll listen to them. And this is all we really want, James, isn't it? We, yeah. we want to be seen and we want to be heard and, and just treated with dignity, which is yeah. a born right of everybody, exactly. whatever your background. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, it's 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 it, 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 yeah, it's 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 remarkable. They do have that that wonderful ability, and and all of them, you know, I've I've met Princess Anne on a couple of occasions, and 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 some and the princes, and, and they all have that ability, and it's it's a real it's a real nice thing that 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 they, that they carry with them, and um, yeah, I feel very very privileged. I come to an end, my role comes to an end in a couple of months' time, having served three years and um you know and i'm 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 proud of what i've achieved but i'm looking forward to to some time back to myself um but it's just been wonderful and you know it's been wonderful to be part of and i, and I guess my lesson from from that is that um you know none of this would have been possible unless i thought to myself i want to give back and 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 that's you know and it doesn't need to be in the big you know, you don't need to become chair of the Prince's Trust to 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 deliver value back to society. It can be very, very small. But I think, you know, I've got more from giving back than I've got from anything else I've ever done in life. It's truly remarkable. And, uh, you know, thank you for what you've done and, what, uh, and the service you give. Um, let's go to, for a moment, for a darker spot and how you handle the darker moment in your personal life or could be as well your business um because we, we you know we all have setbacks in business as well as we do in our personal life and a bit like the stoic philosophy it's not the fact what happens to you it's how you handle what happens to you that marks you out from the average people what what, what yeah. is your story jim well i've got one that um that crosses both spheres actually which is um uh, in around 2014 or it was 2014 uh, my mother was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and um, my mother and I were very close we were best friends you know we'd been through a lot together me as a child and my mum uh, as, as my mother and and we remained that close uh, right up until she passed but uh, when when she was diagnosed with lung cancer I decided that I would go and move in with her and spend those you know last 12 months to 14 months with her rather than um, trying to support her from afar and I just thought if there's ever an opportunity to do the right thing this was it so I was living with my mum who refused to leave her two-bedroom flat above a shop in Bethnal Green because for her that was home she was still renting it um, I was trying to convince her to come and live with me instead I was living in leafy Hampstead uh right next to the right next to the the common there and um the heath and she she wanted to remain in bethnal green so i went to back lived in bethnal green with her it was a terribly tough time watching my mum go through that and you know losing her hair and taking her to hospital appointments knowing that, that it was all leading to one final destination of death quite quite soon thereafter but i was also trying to run my business at the same time and I was, you know, relying on people more than ever in my business to to help me with that. And it was quite strange that um, one day I left the board meeting uh, and, and my finance director at the time, who had been with me for about six, seven years, said to me on my way out the door, have you ever thought about selling the business? And I said to him, sorry. And we got into this very small conversation. I said, I can't talk right now. I've got to go. My mom was going to the hospital. And they they could see that I was going through a terrible, terrible time, you know. Um, and anyway, a, a bit later that evening, I said to my, my now wife, Madeline, I said, this was said to me. I, I, won't, I won't mention. Oh, Alex. Alex said this to me today. Um, I said, really? That doesn't feel like Alex. That's not... It's a bit odd you know he he's an fd he was never a risk taker and he was now sort of approaching me to say have you ever thought about buying a business because we as a management team might be interested in buying it and i said so it's really weird so anyway i couldn't sleep that night and about three in the morning i emailed my solicitor and i said to her can i look into a member of staff's emails because i've had this correspondence and it just feels a bit weird and she asked me to send over some policies the next day she said yes you can i asked our it director to do a download dump of all of alex's emails for the past three months and by the way a good tip never ever read 
somebody else's emails. You will only find things that you don't want to, to, to read about yourself. But I started to find these emails between him and my then non-exec chair and one of my other non-exec directors, and they were colluding to how to approach Jamie to buy the business at the right price. And it was one email in particular that really got to me because it was an email um, that said something along the lines of, I think it's about now is the right time. He's not in a good place. And and it sort of suggested that they might be able to buy the business for for eight million pounds, of which I knew it was worth substantially more. Um, that was a really, really low time for me. So I called called them in to meet me the following day, all individually, and I sacked them all there and then on the basis that there was no way of coming back from this. And I was petrified. And my mum is dying. I, I've got no senior management team. How am I going to survive? Um, but we pulled it around that it was the biggest, uh, it was the biggest motivator. You know, I'm going to prove to you guys this business isn't worth eight million pounds. And and two and a half years later, we sold it for 42 million. Uh, mm. And and they all lost their stock options at, at the time. So they went, you know, that they made nothing, which I'm um I'm very, you know, I'd love for them to to have been paid out if they would have behaved themselves and, and delivered what they were supposed to deliver. But I'm very proud that they didn't make any money from that that transaction in the end. But it was a real low moment, a real mm. low moment. And a and a strong reminder of um money makes people do very strange things. Mm. I was going to say, what what is the lesson that that you would give to people as a result of that, Jamie? Well, it's a, it's an interesting one because people say, you know, well, would you trust people again? And I, of course, I do. I own two majority businesses now that I don't operate in, and I expect my management team to to, to run them run them well. So I would I would hate to to feel that you would lose trust in society or people because of it, because obviously not everybody is bad. Um, but I I guess. The, the, the reality is I'm not too sure there is a lesson to be learned from it. I'm just that the, the reality is this will happen to people over and over again, but it's how you respond to it, isn't it? So I responded to it robustly, but I also responded to it without any hate. So a good example of that is a few years ago, I reached out to my FD because I happened to be in Bristol where he is from and said to him, do you want to have a coffee? And my wife couldn't believe it. She said, I cannot believe you. Why would you do that? And I said, because, you know, we had many good years together and I yeah. liked him. He was a, he was a friend. He was an did, did you have the copy? We didn't, unfortunately. It got cancelled. But we, are, we have been in communication now loosely on, well, let's make that happen and stuff. And I think it came as a shock to him that I reached out and said, I'm in Bristol, let's have a coffee. But yeah. actually, I wanted to have a coffee with him because, you know what, I like him. And I, I think he probably, well, I'm sure he realises that he did the wrong thing and that's enough, right? I'm not, I don't yeah. need to it. I'm not going to him for an apology, but you know, I, I try not to hold grudges. It's really not worth it. I, I think that's very true. And I, I had a situation where I was, uh, um, I bought some properties in Cyprus. It turned out to be a bit of a scam, and I then realised I had to sell them because they it wasn't going to have a whole team of people who'd resell it and all that kind of stuff. You're left with all these properties off plan, and and a friend of mine. Um, said he could help me out and introduce me to a multimillionaire. Turned out the guy wasn't a multimillionaire. He was a fraudster and he'd been to, to jail for um, a property fraud in Spain. Um, and he was he was a fraud. And anyway, I got the two of them uh, arrested on bail for, for what they were doing. But I just couldn't go through with it because there were all sorts of things in my life going on at the time and I just let it drop. But, but I, I did actually have a conversation with him and I said, did you know that he'd been to jail for property fraud. He went, oh, yeah, but Jonathan, he's changed. Like, you knew and you never told me. And I kept asking you, is this guy straight? Is he legit? Is there anything I should be worried about? Something doesn't feel right. No, no, he's great. He's a multimillionaire from Sri Lanka. And, you know, he's going to buy your properties. All your problems going to go away. And, and he was lying to me. The two of them were in yeah. cahoots. And, and I had to drop that. He was he was godfather to one of my children. And I had to, to drop that. But actually, recently, I thought... I'd like to meet him again, not to say, you know, because obviously I've moved on from that, particularly having done yeah. the Hoffman process. Um, I, I just would be interested to meet the person because we we had many years running around as as young officers, him in the Royal Air Force and me in the army in Cyprus. And we we shared many funny days and stories. So but in life, you know, these things happen to you. 
which leads me on to the last sort of three questions. We talk about executive teams, then a book, and then your top tip. Um, executive teams, when you've got somebody like your experience and mine, where they have lacked integrity or honesty or been devious or whatever it might be, and it's gone toxic, what do you do about the team? You you had a clear situation there, but people listening, when you've got somebody in the team who's toxic, what should you do, Jamie? I mean, you've just, uh, you can only act quickly, right? Um, and I know it's, everybody says it, it's easy to say, much more difficult to do, but um, I have never, ever once met anybody that's delayed a process of getting rid of someone when they know that they should get rid of them and has had a good, has had a better outcome because of it. Hmm. It is negative in 100% of the occasions. So it's difficult, right? People don't really don't like firing people. Um, and, and, and from my experience, a lot of people don't like firing people because they go, well, you know, I've got to do it and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you don't have to do it. It's better not to do it yourself, but do it. Yeah. So don't carry all these morals around with you that, well, it has to be me. Um, employ someone, bring in a consultant to do it, bring in a consultant for the day to do it, but do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've done that as well. I once had a couple of uh, coaches who, who were working for the organization I was in and the way they were with the CEO and the way they were with the receptionist on the front desk, who they were thoroughly obnoxious to and just looked down their noses at her. And yet they sucked up to the CEO. And, and I said to them, the way, you are speak so loudly i can't hear what you're saying and it, it's not for me and they are oh, you know uh what do they call me they call me you know um you know the the guy who fires everybody you know the the terminator that was it the terminator you know <laughs> ah jonathan the terminator i go yeah. yeah you know we met in a urinal and he went hello terminator i went hello <laughs> you know what did you say to someone like that but, but you know i can't be having that sort of and and I think as I've got older, I've luckily got more integrated. This is where I talk about the integrated inspiring leadership compass, that when you're disintegrated, bits of it, like your moral compass or your yeah. uh, your resilience isn't there or, or your brand doesn't match who you are. And the more I'm just, if you wake me at four in the morning, if my wife you know, taps me on the shoulder and says, what about this? I've read an email. I, I tell her the truth. You know, I don't have to make up stories or have a story on a story on a story. I mean, this guy who defrauded me in Cyprus, he had stories upon stories. You could see him work out the next story. And then yeah. there was a lie upon a lie upon a lie. Um, so that's great advice. Act quickly. It is difficult, but yeah, employ someone or do it yourself. Um, we talked about a couple of books, one on on leadership and business and, and one on health. What would you pick on those two, Jamie? So for, on business, you know, my, my favorite book is Good to Great by Jim Collins. And um, and, and the reason I love it so much is I think it's actually what is a book. It's a very rare book because it's a it's a complete framework for how to deliver it. Um, so for delivering scale in a business, I think you can literally buy that book and um, and and take a program out of it and deliver it and, and watch your watch your business thrive. And on, on personal books it, it wouldn't surprise you on on sort of health and well-being it wouldn't surprise you that anything on protein is just really not covered um you know now there's probably not enough content to, to write a whole book on it but it should be front and center of every health and well-being conversation that we all have because if you get it right it shreds weight it improves your sleep and it improves your 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 mental your mental health so um protein is key and it's so simple you don't need supplements you just need to probably exactly what you're eating now but in a different order to digest more of it and the improvements of us especially for especially for women yeah yeah and, and that's where i think you and i were talking and i was just listening to dr mark hyman talk with jessica Incapesi, who wrote a book called the glucose revolution which i mm. recommend and, and she talks about this order you know as you said Eat, eat your vegetables first, which gives you that sort of fiber and slows everything down going through the system. Then your protein and your good fats, your know, avocados yes. and nuts and things like that. Uh, and then you can have the carbs, as you say, afterwards and, and end. But don't have a breakfast, which is a dessert. Have a, have a savory breakfast. Don't, don't, and all this Mr. Kellogg's and all his food that he's yeah. 
convince you to have and the, and the sugar's not good well, well, well right. even a fruit juice right jonathan so obviously the fruit juices you know we must all stop having fruit juice in the morning and you go to i was in a i have a daddy daughter weekend away twice a year with each of my girls just one-on-one and we had we had one this weekend and we we're in a hotel at the windsor the royal windsor horse show and um and every time we went for breakfast, the chaps to my daughter, apple juice. And I'm like, no, just no apple juice. Water is fine, right? And another thing, obviously, when you go for dinner in restaurants, the first thing they do is dump a lot of bread while you're waiting for your food. And you start on that stuff. You've taken all of the bad carbohydrates. You get the sugar spice. You're starving hungry when your food arrives. And guess what you're starving hungry for? You're hungry for carbs. So you'll go for the potatoes and the chips and everything else first. And it's creating a complete opposite effect to what you want to be doing. Tell them to bring the bread once they've bought the food, if you want bread with your food. Do not let it land on that table before because the 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 incentive to eat it is far greater than than if it's not there. So can I have, would you like bread, sir? Yes, but bring it with my food. Yeah, yeah, or, or even as a dessert. You know, yes. it, it, it's, it's at the end. No, cracking, and, and lovely hearing that you've got two daughters, I have, and, and both of them now 29 or 30 getting married in the next few months, about oh. three months apart. But I did, just as you do, I have daddy and daughter time, and we yeah. go as a threesome, and uh, <laughs> my wife's very very understanding. We, we go off, and uh, we went to Dubai for four nights. Oh, nice. And because they knew the girls were getting engaged to be married, one of the guests who I had on the, the show, um, Ben Ben Gugamon, spoke to the, the managing director and they laid on in, in the Hilton Dubai this amazing experience on the palm with, with you know, uh, the swans made yeah. roses yeah. for the girls and lovely little chocolate. The girls will never forget it. And then we did going off the um, uh, the leap of faith and uh, in a rubber oh, yeah. ring, screaming our heads off and yelling airborne as I jumped off some long slide, which was really <laughs> far too scary for me who hates heights. But daddy and daughter time, do it throughout your life. It's a really good team. Hey, so um, would you kindly introduce yourself again? Tell us what uh, you're doing in the two minute leadership top tip. And that's the finish, Jamie. Yeah. So I'm Jamie Waller and I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer and philanthropist. And I'm currently chair of the Princess Trust Enterprise Network. I own a number of majority business assets and a large portfolio of minority ones. And I'm currently in the process of writing my second book, The Dyslexic Entrepreneur and what everyone can learn from thinking differently. And my top leadership point uh, a tip right now is to just get going. You know, it's that Nike strap line, just do it. I hear from hundreds of thousands of people every year that are planning and planning and planning. And there's nothing quite like just doing it and getting going. Jamie, it's been a really inspiring session with you. Uh, it, thank you for just going free flow as we did. I, I left a lot of the questions to one side because I just find you so interesting. You are truly inspiring. Thank you to Sandy. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.